was a man with us some of the time. He was a dark man. He, I, was, I was looking through the rearview mirror and I'd see him just sitting there grinning at me. I thought I could outrun him. Get out in the dark, man. My name is Stephen King. Welcome to Filmstrip and our reviews of selected works of Stephen King featuring Nick. Being hijacked by a bunch of government sons of bitches in spacesuits does that to me every time. And Jay. I can hear. I can talk. These podcasts will be spoiler filled and contain in depth discussions of the plots, characters, and themes. We got to get started. Time's short. All content used or discussed in this podcast is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. I'm going to scare the hell out of you. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm the righteous man, Nick. <laughs> and this is our review of Stephen King's The Stand, parts three and four, The Betrayal and The Stand, starring everybody from last time, directed by Big Garrett Still, and of course developed by Stephen King for the miniseries in 1994. And we, we broke this one up into two pieces because we wanted to talk about the second half of it, uh, separate from the first. And we both surmised that the first uh, two parts of this were almost 95% just set up for everything that is to come. And so now we're here for, I guess, what is to come, Nick? And that's uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. And I think before we get into it, though, we got to do the plot, and then we can just jump right headlong into this thing. So we catch up with everybody still traveling across the country, at least Stu's group still traveling across the country, and they eventually make their way to Boulder, Colorado. And meet up with Nick and Tom and Larry and others. And Harold is there. And there's a lot of tension growing between him and Stu. Because, of course, Harold and Fran are starting to hit it off and all this stuff. And initially all is okay in Boulder. But Fran, of course, discovers she's pregnant. And it causes a lot of anxiety because she's you know not sure the child's going to be immune to super flu and all that stuff. And, of course, Harold's becoming more and more distance. And sensing a chink in the armor, Flag sends Nadine, his concubine, if you will, to seduce Harold so that he can kind of have an insider on um, his team. And meanwhile, the Boulder group has sent its own people, Tom Cullen and another girl, to be the insiders in Flag's group. So both sides are committing espionage. And Harold ultimately betrays the group, sets off a bomb, kills several people, including Nick, uh, and, uh, at the end of part three. And then part four begins with Mother Abigail, who is the spiritual center of things in Boulder, convinced she's fallen into the sin of pride and leaves town to walk in the wilderness. She returns and, of course, is very sick, but before passing away, she tells Stu, Larry, and Glenn, and Ralph that they have got to travel to Las Vegas to make a stand against Randall Flagg. And with Winterfest approaching, they set out on their quest, and while crossing a washed-out road, Stu breaks his leg and is forced to stay behind. While the other three continue, Larry, Glenn, and Ralph are soon captured by forces, and Glenn's executed in prison, while Larry and Ralph are set to be drawn and quartered among a raucous crowd in Vegas. And just as they're about to be tortured to death, uh, to the delight of Flag's acolytes, the trash can man shows up dragging a nuclear weapon behind him on a four-wheeler. Great gas mileage on those things. And, uh, of course, you know, all hell's about to break loose. Flag transforms into some kind of bat demon crow thing flies off and a spectral hand reaches down detonates the bomb destroys las vegas 
killing all the Flag supporters and supposedly him. Stu is ultimately rescued by Tom and taken to Neil, uh, Hill in a nearby cabin as winter sets in. They eventually make it back to Boulder and, of course, being reunited with Franny, she gives birth to a healthy baby daughter that they name in honor of Mother Abigail. And the show closes with the idea of, you know, can we get it right this time as humanity? And the ultimate answer is, well, we don't know. And that's that's really how it ends. And uh, we're going to talk a lot about that ending, but... Let's talk about just the picking up where we left off here, Nick. I, I messaged you offline about this, and I, it was something I had forgotten about the pacing of this thing. It felt like to me, when we pick up in part three here, that we're, I was missing something. Like, I thought, did, did I skip a chapter somewhere along the way? Does it feel that way to you that uh, the, at least the first 30 minutes of the part three here, I feel like I am behind or out of the loop on what is going on? Yeah, it's a real fast pickup from where it ended. I mean, it almost seems like a couple of weeks or days of or days or weeks have gone by, and we're just kind of playing catch up with all the characters. I mean, chances are they're probably all just sitting around having barbecues and you know, kind of feeling good and you know, over dramatic, being over dramatic about everything. But yeah, I kind of agree that it kind of like felt like we just kind of like maybe skipped like twenty minutes or so. Yeah, I mean, it does feel like that. There's just a a real truncated part to all of this and I, I don't know where that comes from or, or why and I don't remember the book being that way now tell me if I'm wrong and and it was but I don't recall the book being so again just just kind of throwing us in the middle of it like that no everything was set up everything was you were taking a longer journey from beginning to end so no there really wasn't anything where it kind of like moved past a couple of weeks and three back into the story kind of like part three did I mean it, it is it does feel like I'm watching a television show and I've missed a couple episodes you know, I mean, that's that because everything is just sort of, I don't know, it feels different. But the whole feel of the thing is different now, too. Like, it, it, there's a different quality and pace to the set, the third and the fourth parts of this compared to the first and the second. And it, some of it can be the location, but it's also the way everybody acts. Like, Gary Sinise is a lot more forceful now than he was in those first parts. Like, I never took Stu Redman as this natural-born leader. I took him as just this good old boy that could get by. And he's much more of an active leader role in this uh, these this back half of the story, if you will. You think maybe it's because he's now going to learn he's a father? That maybe he feels like he well, has to take a little bit more of a... He's got to take a little bit more of a stand here, Jay. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, here's the thing, though. And that's one of the, the, the things in the book. And they don't make it totally clear in this, but I think they're alluding that he is the father of Fran's baby. But in the book, that's not it. No, she's he, pregnant from the get-go. Yeah, and, she's I mean, pregnant by her boyfriend in the book. This the, the this miniseries, I think it makes it pretty clear that they, he is the father. I mean, probably one of the worst sex scenes ever was shown. Oh, by this. the river? Oh, my oh. gosh. That was bad. It was like... I don't know if you ever watched Family Guy, but they had like something on there where it was um, they're talking about like how like censorship TV and how there's going to be like a sex scene or something like that, and how like the uh, the way it has to be censored. It's like yeah, you can't have any thrusting, any movement. You just have to stand there, and that's exactly what it is. It's like she sits on his lap, and it's like they're just sitting there kissing, and it's like you can kind of see the kind of what they're trying to do, and then like Harold's like looking at him like a voyeur. But it's like, my God, is that is that a bad scene? Because it's like, dude. Well, there's two thoughts about that. One, in the book, it's it's much more detailed, of course, and Harold does catch them doing that. But 
and I know you can't do that on television and stuff. But she still had her pants on. I don't know how it worked. <laughs> the problem I'm having with it is that Molly Ringwald and Gary Sinise have absolutely no chemistry together. And we talked about that last time, but it's really evident here. Like they they just do not go together. I put it on her because she is abysmal throughout this whole thing, and she gets. You didn't think she could get worse, but she does. She somehow found out how to get worse in parts three and four, and. Gosh, she has a big mouth, too. I mean, every, like, reaction she has, she's, like, <laughs> gaping her mouth open as wide as she can, like, oh, my God. And she's, like, got to show teeth, like, every time. When she talks, like, her lips are completely curled up like an alien. I mean, it's... Well, that's that's all she knows how to do, though. I mean, that's, that's Molly Ringwald's performances. And in the right film, that works. The problem here is she cannot carry this. Like, the other females that get featured a little bit more... This time around, Nadine, for one, uh, Dana, the other one, much more compelling performance. Well, definitely, yeah, because the thing is, Molly Ringwald always, like I said in the first part, she is the habitual, you know, girl that's in love with someone that she cannot get, you know. She's not the right. she's not the head cheerleader. She's the, you know, girl volunteering at the library or something. I mean, she, and the whole, like, plot of her in here is that she's supposed to be like this girl that everybody's kind of going after like Harold's like obsessed with her and then this like new guy comes in and he also becomes obsessed with her she is not that type of actress I mean you need someone that's yeah, you know like a I don't even know who like a I don't know. She is she is the girl, the quintessential girl next door. Yeah, and that is not the character though. Fran is a a striking woman, actually. And I'll say this now, and I don't. She's not much of a looker, but Lars Sangiacomo can play that. Mm-hmm. She would have been a better Fran, and she's good as Nadine, but she would have been better as Fran, and they could have had anybody you know whore it up. You know, I'm thinking like mid mid nineties, like someone like maybe like Jennifer Aniston back then would have played the role a lot better because you know like an attractive girl. You know, yeah, they're going after. I'm not, I'm not saying that Molly Ringwald's ugly. She's just not that girl that everybody's going to like. She enters the room and everybody drops what they're doing and looks she, at her. She's not the girl that someone will turn their life over to Satan and bomb people for. Okay? And that's basically what happens. Yeah. And that is just, she's just not that. That's not how she works. And, and I think you're right to lay a lot of it on her. But I'm going to tell you, Gary Sinise is not, is not the kind of leading man where he can be a forceful person. He's always better when he's subtle, and it it's bad in here. You know who actually is good in the second half of this, who I thought was just awful in the first half, is uh, Bill Funderburg, who plays uh, Tom Cullen. He is so much more interesting the second time around. Oh, he's, a, when... he's the smartest character throughout this whole series. I, 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 I'm, <laughs> not, I'm not trying to form. be mean or trying to be funny. I am dead serious. He is the smartest guy in this entire series. He is. Well, you know, think about it. He's the the whistle. One thing that is missing from this that we always get in Stephen King films, that childlike innocence that can see through all the bullshit and sort of learns to tackle the evil. And in a way, that's what Tom Cullen is because he is, you know, a stunted, you know, in learning or whatever. He's like a big kid, but in the same way that a kid can be cagey like the kids in it and stuff like that, he's incredibly resourceful. And he remembers when they tell him, you come back when the moon is full. You know, he's he is really good at hiding the fact that he is basically being a spy, even after they figure it out. And he's, he gets away before anybody can do anything about it. I mean, he's, I'm with you. He's the smartest character in the second half of this by far. And he's really fun to watch. Yeah, yeah, and they they take away. I mean, you know, they they give him some real stuff to deal with. They take away Nick from him. 
you know, and he has that whole great scene where he's like, I can't even remember what he looks like anymore, you know, and he has that vision of him or whatever, but it's, you know, he he's coming to grips with things in a way that a child would, and that's what makes him so much more interesting. Well, we've always said too throughout like a lot of this, like a lot of the Stephen King things, is that the children are always the smartest characters in the stories, right? And I think that's almost kind of the case here. I mean, he's not like smart in the way that you can put him down and have him do trigonometry, but I think he. He's got like this innocent smarts to him where it's like he's going to get through stuff because he's like, you give him a mission, you give him like a duty, and he's going to do it until it's done. Right. He's resourceful. He's he's a kid doing a chore. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, when they like, I think like he does a great job. And it's almost like this actor, too. I mean, he's always in those roles, isn't he? I mean, even look at like Dobber and stuff like in Coach. I mean, I think when it, like the first season, he actually played a football player. And then throughout, it's kind of like he's like the brain-dead football player that's now going to be a coach or something like that. And he's always, even Patrick on SpongeBob, he always <laughs> plays the slow, dim-witted character, and he does a great job of it. I will say that out of all the characters here and all the actors here, I enjoyed him the most. And I thought he was annoying as hell in the first two, but here I actually kind of like him. Well, then, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, you know, M-O-O-N spells good work, Tom, because I, I thought he did. He was really good. He's got fantastic um, hair, too. I just want to throw that out there. He's got, like, it, just that just, bowl. Yeah, just that bowl <laughs> cut. And it's just like, it's like a perfect head of hair. I mean, it's not too thin, I, not too thick. Very good. So. It's it's very Midwest. That's for sure. So. <laughs> I'm going to style my hair after him. After this <laughs> There time. you go. You should go for that. I, I think it would work for you. Well, I mean, we really get we We have a difference in our two groups here big time, you know, and let's talk about the group in Boulder just as all together. Everybody rallies around Mother Abigail. And we talked about last time what biblical character she is, the allegory for. And I think it's dead clear here that she's supposed to be Moses. Nope, it's Jesus. All the way through. Really? I Dude, disagree. she lost. She won and they spent like 40 days in the desert like Jesus did. Uh, okay. Can I tell you why I think it's Moses? Moses goes through the same crisis of faith she does here. He loses his way and out of pride commits sin with the children of Israel. And his his punishment for that is, well, their punishment is they have to walk in the wilderness. And his punishment is he'll never get to see the land of Canaan. You know, He never gets to go into what was promised. He gets to see it, but he doesn't get to be a part of it anymore because of that sinful pride. Jesus didn't have sinful pride. Moses did. And that's why I think she is much more of a Moses figure than a Jesus figure here this time around. Plus, we don't get to see anything of what happens to her in the desert. You know, like the, well, it, the thing about Jesus to, going man, into the desert I mean, is there's a temptation. I mean, it, Go you ahead. got Jesus, you got like a 30-year-old guy going out there walking around. I mean, you got her. It's like, she probably like pretty much walked around the block. <laughs> I don't think she could have made it that far. <laughs> she probably got temptations from the mailbox. You know? What exactly set her off as to, I have given into this sinful... Bro- what did she do? Well, I didn't I see she had done anything bad. They didn't... I, I read between the lines here, and you got the old guy, the teacher with the dog, with the golden uh, retriever. Yeah, Glenn, yeah. And I think he was supposed to be representing what she was becoming. Because you heard all through part two and even a little bit of part three that he was real hesitant on seeing her. Because he's right. just like, he he was really looking at kind of like an analytical perspective where he was like, well, yeah. He's he was just the like, academic. You know, who is this yeah. lady? You know, we're supposed to go there and also like treat her like a deity and stuff like that. I mean, he's like, he didn't believe in the hype. You know what I'm saying? And I think 
in a way that was actually kind of representing who she was because everybody was going there praising down to her, walking into this town, walking into her house, and everybody's got to go and talk to her and almost get like a blessing from her, you know. And I, and well, I, I yeah, think there that is she, this weird I think that moment. she was almost like yeah. she she fell into the hype that she was. That I think that she was granted this position by God in this in this movie, and that she thought to start to think that she was God. Yeah, you make an interesting point there, and I was going to talk about that too. There is this whole like ceremony where people gather at her steps and they come up to kiss her hand. It's almost like the Pope and stuff like that. And like when Nadine shows up, Larry's going over there to talk to her, and Stu stops him like no. And it's almost like he's saying, you don't interrupt the kissing of Mother Abigail's hand moment. And I was like, what? What? what is the big deal with this woman? She hasn't gotten up and prophesied in front of anybody. She's barely even talked to anybody. It, was, it didn't start you know? with her. It started with the dreams. Yeah. And then everybody thought that she was like some type of deity. So when they go there, they're treating her like this. And she started kind of falling into it. Started like, you know... How what she should have done is when they're coming up here is like, no, you guys don't need to come up here and say, you know, go go in the back and get some biscuits or something, you know? Don't, don't come up here and look for my blessing and stuff like that. I well, think yeah, you're starting it, to give people like the blessing, the yay or the nay with Nadine's case. I think that's when she kind of fell into this whole like, mm, you know, trap maybe set by God or something like that where it's pride. like, hey, you know what, you're maybe you're not the person to lead them because you're falling into your own hype here. Oh, that's interesting. It's 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 an it's well, a thing is they they, they treat it poorly though, man. I mean, a better story would have shown her actually well, here's, admitting it. Here's the thing: like, is I mean, you have the scene where she's praying on the bed and she's kind of admitting it to herself that you know, hey, I'm not the person right. who I'm not acting the way I should. But I think they should have like like as you said, kind of like maybe went with her journey a little bit more instead of just having her disappear for a little bit. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's the thing is everything goes bad in Boulder, and Randall Flagg doesn't even have to do it. Does anybody, I mean, does you know, anybody in is, the story even I don't know, do an interesting I mean, let's be point. Here. Well, <laughs> well let, let's, well, before we dissect all that, though, let's talk about this. Because that's an interesting trope that you find sometimes in these large epic stories, is that it always seems like, oh, the bad guys are going to come get us, and everybody gets real paranoid about that, and it's all about the arm and up for it and stuff. And what really starts to screw everything up is just people being themselves. Like, Flag doesn't even have to do anything to infiltrate them. It's only after he learns there are spies in his own camp that he sends Nadine after uh, Harold, you know, and, and stuff like that. So... They were going to. They were destroying themselves and screwing it all up before he even bothered with any of them. That's the funny thing. And I mean, they're starting to elect this council, and there's that whole bit, which God, that went on forever. And the whole let's sing the national anthem. I actually sat there and said to myself, I was like, Oh, they're actually going to sing the whole thing. Well, they got an hour and a half. <laughs> and I mean, I'm not episode, against man. the national anthem. Something. I mean, I mean, heaven forbid, actually have a band <laughs> filled up with actually something happening. <laughs> <laughs> well, can I just say this too? The, uh, part three of all of these feels like the most filler of anything. It's like they really stretch this well, out. I'm like this could have been three parts, not four. I know the book's a million pages long, but they're skipping so much anyway. Well, we talked there about was how, no need to do. We so talked about the first two parts. That, were set that up, seemed like a part three choice. is even more set up. I mean, it's you got you got what each of these are an hour and a half. You got four and a half hours of setup at this point, and. Yeah, I yeah. mean, you were talking, like, even, like, the national anthem thing and everything. It's just, like, I don't know, man. It's Maybe it's just my own cynicism coming through, but, like, everything as far as even, like, the first three parts has just come off so hokey and so just, like, Sesame Street, everybody get along, kissy-kissy stuff with, like, this boulder crap. Or... 
Well, it is, and that's the thing. The book does not feel that way at all. This is it's schmaltzy, is much man. It's darker, schmaltzy. Everything and, is. and 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 without under, but that's the thing that makes no sense to me is it, it's not like somebody came along and hacked the book up. Stephen King hacked it up, and I and, and now I'm I'm going to start getting into a larger discussion that we'll have at the end of this episode. But this is a problem I have with Stephen King, particularly when his fingers are, you know, dug deep into whatever's being adapted, is he turns it into this Steven Spielberg Saturday afternoon special all, all the time. And it's, God, it just feels so... Uh, it's right, almost like, you ever seen the Twilight Zone movie, Steven Spielberg's segment with, like, it's like that, where it's just like this yes, over... Yes. Over goody-goody Americana crap. And that's just the way everything felt like so far, like... Even like when Mother Abigail disappeared, like she's gone, she's gone. Everybody embraces in the middle. Like I said, you you you're questioning me. It's like, dude, this is exactly why I'd be like, screw you guys, I'm going to Vegas because I, I could not deal with this stuff. I'd be puking. <laughs> I mean, this is just like chewed up, vomited out Fruit Loops. I mean, it's just too much of it here, and it's like. Like I said, the American anthem, everybody embracing. Even like when they're trying to choose like who the committee is, like this is who Mother Abigail like suggested, and then like Harold stands up and like, I think that we should just accept who she wants to be, and everybody gives him a round of applause. It's like, man, it's just it's hokey. It's so hokey right here, and everything, even the music cues and just this lovey dovey crap. I don't know. It's just it was really rubbing me the wrong way because well, we both seen like post apocalyptic movies and everything like that. And we've seen, like, really good ones. We've seen really bad ones. I've never seen something so far into, like, the Saturday morning <laughs> type, you know, behavior of characters before. It's, all, it's, it's borderline ridiculous how most of these people are acting. Well, the, the big – and you've hit on a problem here. And the, the big problem with this – and I think it's, it's part of what you said Mother Abigail's sin was, is that she realized she fell into her own hype. I think this – movie and this story because it is so well revered and for a good reason the book is excellent i'll say right now if you've never read a stephen king book it's a it's a challenge but if you can get through it it's fantastic yeah it's it may oh, be yeah, they, they, they consider it to be his opus it's certainly i mean it's it is it is a magnum opus it is but this this thing is a terrible uh, recount of it it is it is bad. It's like watching. I'm trying to think about you know something I've, I can equate it to. Um, I used to really be big into songwriters and watching the songwriters that wrote hit songs for other artists perform those tunes. Like I used to think that was so cool until I really watched some of them do it and I realized, <laughs> geez, there's a reason you're not the artist. You know, <laughs> like you just start to realize that, like when you're too married to your own crap, and it it just it gets so stuck up its own ass that it it can't it you can't broaden out and be interesting anymore. Like this this whole miniseries operates on this premise of this is really big, this is really important, and it's so damn important. We're gonna shove it in your face how important it is all the time, and we're gonna do all this over the top, you know, national anthem tinge stuff that's supposed to draw on the heartstrings, but all it does is make me hate every character more. Like they're not developing anybody. No, there's there's, there's no know. character development at all. Yeah, the only Glenn person Bateman, who's in any bit of development is Harold. No. 
And here, here's the thing right. that kind of drives me nuts is there's like there's no gray at all in this whole entire series. There's no shades of gray. It's you got the people in Boulder and they are goody goody mm-hmm. goody two shoes, and then you got the people in Vegas and they are bad. They're evil. You know, they're bikers. They're girls that are barely dressing anything. They're all wearing lingerie or see through clothing. I mean, it's like there's no shades of gray. Or they're or they're or they're yeah, exactly. And it's just like the- there's no like tension at all within boulder and there's no tension at all within vegas i mean it's just like and they try to play it though you know there's one of lloyd's guys that's like i'm thinking about bugging out and lloyd's like no i'm gonna stay and that whole conversation they have i'm like no you're both just you know milk toast boards. exactly that's why you should both be shot right now on the street like i don't buy that at all there's it, there's supposed to be all this tension and there's not like there's about three minutes of tension in this is when you're starting to wonder what is Harold going to do well, after Nadine shows up? What is his plot? And then you see him building the bomb and it's like, well, they spoiled that. Like I would have been better off if they had never let us know what he was. There, there's a segment I do like, though, and let's back up a little bit. I do like Nadine's character a lot. I think that she and Harold, I'll take it back. Nadine has yeah. a very good arc, too. Yeah, she does, and and I I will say now a lot of that is Laura Sanjiu. Oh, she is. She's she is excellent. Really in good in that role of sort of self-destructing. She, you know, she reminded me of or reminded me of a performance. Um, I, you know, the movie The Devil's Advocate is a mess, but Charlize Theron is brilliant in that because she just goes into complete self-destruction, and it's the same yeah, thing Laura Sanjiu does. What I like about her character is just like, you know, we we're talking about before, like kind of like the visions that people were having when they were sleeping, and from what I'm gathering from the movie is that. Flag and Mother Abigail were kind of going at everybody. Everybody who was alive, they were giving visions to. And based on, like, kind of like your own inner personality and what you believe, it's depending on where you're going to go. Because everybody who's been there, like Sinise's character, the doctor, right. the token black guy in the truck, I mean, they all. <laughs> Ossie Davis, who is, by the way, is Ruby D, the the actress playing uh, Mother Abigail. That's her husband. So wow. the reason she he's have, there. She must have robbed the uh, cradle there. But anyways, um, it seemed like everybody was getting visions of that, both of them. Did you get that too? Or it seemed like, because they, they knew who Flag was. Because it was always like this Flag fella, this Flag fella and stuff. So Right. Yeah, no, so or, I think what was going on is I think whatever. that yeah, once like, yeah, died, I, I got that. they were both throwing visions at everybody, or mm-hmm. you know, maybe the god and double was, or the god and flag was, however you want to interpret it. Well, you know what would have made that more believable is if they had done that in the last part. But all we ever see, like you said, the black and white stuff, you see the bad people get the flag visions, the good people get the other visions. Larry's the only yeah. one that I can but remember. He really didn't even get both. both, though. He just got like, and, what was it, like and it, just flag you know. in the cornfield, was it? Or right? It's yeah, just like it a made flag look like, like a he demon. Didn't I would have like loved it if they would actually had a of, uh, visions where it was like flag being like, you know, don't listen to old lady. You know, you want to come out here and stuff. This is you know, trying trying to tempt them in a way. Like there's women, there's wealth, everything you right. want. Like like, hey, like I said on, last time, Larry, or she's a super yeah. Right, exactly. I mean, that's the thing is like Flag should have appealed to somebody like Larry. Well, it goes Larry back to his character star. how badly it's you know, or was, like, dude, you should have made him like a fucking like uh, Tommy Lee Jones type guy or something, you know, not, you know, some country bumpkin guy mm-hmm. who's got a terrible song. <laughs> Oh, which, well, you know, the funny thing is, is the way everybody bastardizes that song. But the song is a bastardization of music, of I mean, you know, Flag does it. 
Well, I know, but it but it's funny to me how everybody has a take on it, and it just gets worse and worse. It's kind of like this movie. The further along it goes, yeah. the worse it gets. But it's let's kind of get story. back into Nadine and stuff like that. And I see her character as, like, it was real interesting, because she was kind of going back and forth, like, I think she wanted to be good, but that temptation was always there to pull her back out of it. And she made a final plea with Larry. And the fact that he could not mm-hmm. whip it out at her was the whole downfall of himself and many other people. I mean, she begged him to basically do her. And she wanted, because she knew that if he would yeah. basically have sex with her, that Randall Flagg's plan, which I think his plan was to bring an heir, you know, maybe the whole Antichrist thing or something, would be broken. That whole thing would be broken. Yeah, something because like that. He even says it to her, too. Like, later, it's like, you can do everything but that. You know, that's mine. You need to be a virgin when I meet you and stuff. So she goes up to Larry, and she's just like, right. no, please just bang me. And he just turns her down. And it was like, I kind of like that, though, because once she got turned down, that was the final straw for her. She's like, you know, screw these people, screw it all. I'm going to flag. Well... Can I tell you how I read her, though, is it not so much the final straw of like she was more resigned to her fate of like, well, OK, now I know what my destiny is and I just there's nothing I can do about it. It's very Kubrickian. You know, the idea of can, can you decide better if Larry kind of more resembled you know, flag I, where he was kind of like, you know, maybe they're both like the bad boys. Yeah. And that's why maybe she was attracted to this guy where it was like he reminds me a lot of him. I, I think. I think Larry is supposed to be, and it just doesn't come off that way. Now, now, we said it last time. Rob Lowe was supposed to be Larry. Would it work better if it was Rob Lowe? I could kind of buy that, because Rob Lowe yeah, is that kind of And I think like, if they would have got someone like Robert Downey Jr. like we are talking last time, it would have been perfect for it. Yeah, yeah. I would have bought it more. It's But this guy, Adam Stork, and uh, Jamie Sheridan are nothing. They look nothing alike. They act nothing alike. They're totally different. Not even the same ballpark. Kind oh, of one, one, so one, one has charisma. It makes for real uneven. Like, has as much charisma as a piece of wet toast. Well, which one have you ever seen again? And, you know, the other one, I, I this is all I know he's ever been in. Jamie Sheridan was so good that after he had Bell's palsy, they just wrote it into his character on Law and Order. You know, I mean, that's, you know, you're good when you have a debilitating, you know, disease and problem. And the producer. Well, I will say like, this too. I have read a couple issues it. of the Stan I mean, comic book that Marvel yeah. put out. And they make Flag look an awful lot like him. The yeah. other characters don't look anything like the characters in the series. What? That's the thing. I have seen some of those, those, uh, characterizations you're right and i i mean they really did it it's probably the best casting they did well it's just it like it. Thing i mean him. tim and, curry was a standout mm-hmm. it, seemed, it seems like they, they got a real good knack at casting oh, yeah. villains but everybody else yeah not so much <laughs> well the the kids in yeah it, I'm talking, talking, talking the, the adult counterparts the yeah, a little more uneven yeah 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 the kid the kids were fine but the adults eh, not so much i agree but you know it's I, we're here, and that's that is what it is. But what do you think of the the plot that Flag what, has what, here? What though, is this plot? Send that Nadine the plan to originally. turn Harold over the edge. I I told you I think it is to have a spy on the inside, and then to have somebody strike a blow at him that he thinks might with a group that's already fracturing. This might send him completely over the rails, and he knows what we're supposed to know is that Nick is the most important one of all of these people. And then they just kill him off and to never be heard from again, except in one vision later on like that. 
What did you make of the deaf mute who yeah, finally learned I, how to speak? I don't know. I think the whole too. thing with like the bomb thing, that was kind of like happenstance. I think that, you know, I don't even know, realize why she, I think the only reason she was there was because she was trying to be good. I don't think Flag sent her there. I think she was just there because she was really had this internal struggle. And I think that after she kind of met, met that breaking point or she realized what her destiny was, that Flag finally took control of her and then used Harold's you know, happenstance of him just kind of being almost the same thing where, you know, she was going after Larry, she realized it wasn't going to happen. Harold was going after, you know, Molly Ringwald and he realized it wasn't going to happen. And that he kind of took that event and then turned it into his favor. He was not, he was an opportunist hey. there. Because he Harold was going to, he was, he was going to nuke, he was going to nuke Bauer. So what was the this. point of them bombing them? I think he was going to nuke them right. from, the, from the first chapter. Well, yeah, because that was that's the whole bit, and we're, we're not talking about him much, but Trash Can Man gets sent on this errand to find the nuclear weapon. And I've, I've always wondered, like, why? And it, it finally occurred to me this time, it's like, this is the, the flag is going to launch that at Boulder. That's the point. And what happens to it is the the other part of the story, but I... I mean, I'm with you. I'm like, I, I that because of the fact that that is his plan, and we both know that's his plan, and it's pretty clear that it is. It makes the the dynamite bomb. It just seem like the actions of a jilted yeah, I think, lover. I think it was just him taking advantage of the situation. Dad, like, hey, yeah. you know, let's just let's just screw all their leaders yeah. up. You know, why to leave them more of a sitting duck if we get rid of these guys? Happenstance. Just, just, just he's taking he's taking well, advantage of a situation that kind of fell into his lap right there. Well, and that's that's very much like a Satan thing is to let's let me just I'm not going to you know outwardly turn people to do things. I'm just going to use what's already in you to create well, how do you chaos take Harold's turn confusion. though? Because when did you know, he exactly turn? Because in the book, it's pretty clear when he turns. Because even when he was in Boulder, he wasn't bad. I mean, he was a little jaded about the whole like love triangle no. thing. But he found an identity in the book. He called himself Hulk, right. if you remember that. Because like he he kind of became like right. I do not like that. the town sheriff, but kind of like the most like one of the more intellectual people there. Where it was kind of like he was smart and yet he was able able body. He was taking command. You know, he was taking charge. <coughs> excuse me. Of cleaning up the bodies and everything like that. Mm -hmm. In the series, it's not very clear. I mean, we obviously see him, you know, look on as Molly Ringwall and, you know, Gary Sinise bump uglies and everything, but it really isn't clear because also, like, he comes up and he's like, I nominate that all you guys who Mother Abigail wants to be in charge be in charge and stuff. And it's just really not clear of when he turns. I mean, he goes and he gets seduced by Nadine, but is that the reason why? You know what I think he when he turns is when he starts screwing her because he becomes this misogynistic jerk out of nowhere. Like he starts building the bomb and he tells her like, "Don't talk to me, woman," and he starts treating her like a whore, you know, and all this stuff. And it's See, like that doesn't make any sense did, either because you figure a guy like that who's been like no, so like you know hungry after this girl and then he gets cock blocked. He would be no, laughing at what her. He would have been like he would have yeah. been like, I mean, PG Casher, but he would have been pussy whipped guys. I mean, he would have been, like, following her orders mm-hmm. because he's been so desperate to get some from That's Molly what I mean, Ringwald, yeah. And he doesn't get it, and he's getting some from this girl. And I think he would have just fell over head over heels for her. Well, I mean, yeah, that's the thing, is Nadine doesn't outwardly tell him, Harold, I want you to kill them all for me. You know, she just is, she's as much a pawn in this as anything. And you can see it weighing on her. Like, she hates the fact that she's 
using him I mean, she should have been Lady Macbeth. for flag or whatever she's supposed to be doing. She should have been like, you know, hey, she right. tried to be good. She tried to hook up with Larry. They they shot down her advances. So what she's going to do, she's going to get back at them. And she's going to use, she's going to, yeah, well, it is much, much more, more like, like that, book, that but in I'm just the talking book, from a serious too. standpoint. That's the thing. That she should have then yeah. turned that motivation yeah. and then took in this one guy here who was right for the taking and then basically, you know, gave him into the desires that he was looking for and then used that as as type of you know like a like a fuel or a, like a carrot in front of a donkey for him, where it's like, hey, you know, I gave this to you. You need to do this for me. She she should. You know what she should have been? She should have been much more Jezebel tempting Samson, you know, to, to let me know, you know, what the strong point is. Like, she should have used him for something, then thrown him by the wayside. As it goes, he sets off the bomb. They ride out of town on motorcycles. He has a wreck, falls down the hill, break, breaks himself up, and she's like, see you, Larry. And then she, or see you, Harold. And then she's gone. And, you know, he's left to die on the side of that hill. Which is how it happens in the book, and he has a much more interesting death. But I still, I, I he should have been he should I have really been like heartbroken and stuff. What like was happening? The woman that he gave his life for, and you know, right. basically betrayed all his friends, and it doesn't come off like that. It comes just like ah, oh, they're getting off of there, you know. Plus, dude, wearing like leather and stuff on the crash rocket, it's not a good look. He should have been driving a Harley, or he should have been no, like in like a not... motorcycle jacket for the uh, <laughs> crash rocket. He was mixing looks up there. He he showed. He needed he needed he needed tips from the way yeah, the guys he, he was he was mixed up. Yet, I think it just kind of shows so his character not, how stupid he is. But <laughs> well, it it's also how uneven all these things are coming together because they just got too. It's like they've spent so much time doing setup of nothing here that now they're getting into the let's do something. And Dude, I like, mean, oh, crap, we don't really I, have any time I, to do. I, I used to drive a so, I used to drive a Harley and stuff like that. And it's like, dude, I haven't seen studs like that ever. That's like so that, that, that's like something out of like uh you know who like I saw demolition in WWF. You, no, no. Do you remember the? That's exactly what I was about to say. You know, the last time I saw that, either the Road Warriors or Demolition. Or Those are the only Max. people I ever saw dressed like that. Everybody I knew that rode motorcycles. No, no. You, they you, do you have not leather dress on, like that. maybe chaps. Okay, it's not how the it goes. Studs coming out like crazy. You do not wear the studs. You no, know, unless you're in an Iron Maiden yeah, video. There's nobody does that. Okay, it's, it's a bad stereotype, and it looks even worse than somebody like Corin Nimick. Yeah, and that's something that's some such S&M an old stuff there from like remember you just never ball with the S&M group. That's what that's from. Yes, so it's just like, exactly. It, it's very S&M. Yes, it's 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 as bad of of. Uh, costume dressing as I've seen in a, in a film and we've seen some See, pretty that, bad that, But that's what I like about the book <laughs> is after he yeah, realizes it, that it's not going to work out with the Molly mm-hmm. Ringwall character is that he kind of becomes his own man. You know, he becomes his own thing and he becomes a confident yeah. guy. He's got the intellect. He's smarter than, you know, nine out of ten right. people in the uh, Boulder community and he he also has, a, like I said, the physical capabilities because in the beginning of the book he's a very heavy, obese guy and he becomes skinnier and more fit throughout the series. And or throughout the book, and it kind of fits in with him. Yeah. Like he's getting all this confidence and stuff. He's put that whole like you know love thing behind him. But in the book, he's in the series, he's just kind of pathetic. I don't know. Well, but, he but, is. But, but, but as much as we say that, though, he, he actually has like one of that's why out of everybody there. Mm-hmm. Well, he he does, but it's still not. Dude, very I'm good. trying to that's give a little credit and here, man. It is. <laughs> I, I know, but part three ends with all of that and with 
the four men being sent on the quest, essentially, you know, with the, you know, faux dust in the wind esque kind of theme going behind them. And they head off on the road. You got, I mean, you know, nothing but what you got on your back right now. So Larry carries his guitar with him. Ralph's got his, you know, his flannel on, uh, Gary Sinise has got on his leather jacket, and Glenn is wearing his stupid And then they walk the off dog. hand And then that's hand. it. And they, they head off. Yeah, they they go down the road together. And it's supposed to be this real poignant thing, but it doesn't come off that way. There's one scene where it does later on, but not right here. It's, it's really – because I don't understand what they're going to do. Like, it's not very clear to me – what their purpose is. And I realize you want to keep some of that in secret because it's part of the plot, but I don't know. Did you get why they were being sent off at all? It, it's never clear to me until the end of it what the purpose of those four guys going to stand the up the flag. I don't understand. Because it's almost like a test of faith. Of That's really what it is. They, 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 they didn't do a thing, man. Well, I'm going to tell you what I... Well, you know what I think it was is it's supposed to be that those who are going to be on the side of good can't just say they're going to be on, on the side of good. They have to be willing to lay down their life for it. And lay down their life three how, of them though, just walking in and there and that's going, the take point. me. I mean, I don't know. It just seemed kind of like some like weird like Gandhi metaphor here, where it's just like we're going to go there with nonviolence well, and our okay, nonviolence you know, we- and belief in our cause is going to defeat you just by itself. Well, well, hold on a minute, though. You, you know, we talked about the Jesus metaphors here. When Jesus is arrested in the garden, one of his apostles, you know, strikes out and, and cuts the ear off of one of the soldiers, and Jesus heals the soldier. And yeah, says, but no, that that's soldier wasn't going flag, down, and he goes willingly. No, he soldiers right. weren't you're, sitting you're there correct. going, "We're going to shoot a freaking nuke at you guys." I mean, this is. I mean, they're 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 basically trying to shoot a BB yeah. gun at a freaking freight train at this point with what their what their mission is. And I, I, I want to even get to the point, too, where well, it's and like, that's the I thing. don't think that they did anything to defeat Randall Flagg. Mm-hmm. Randall Flagg defeated Randall Flagg. He did. He did. Okay, so By we get Nadine, pride, right? I mean, after the whole ridiculous motorcycle accident with, like, probably the worst case of wire foo I've ever seen with the guy. With the, that's terrible. But anyway, oh, she meets up with yeah. Randall Flagg. It was horrible. And he bones her by a fire. And, like, of course, you know, the best way to romanticize a woman is by doing completely shape-changing things and freaking the shit out of her. But, uh, yeah, he he bangs her, and she goes insane. And it's like, for someone who's, like, so supposed to be so smart and so suave, it was like, it's pretty stupid of him to do. Because he he basically, she had a mental, she had a mental breakdown there. And that was the beginning of his undoing. And then we get further into it where... He's got the spies, and he figures out about the spies. They kill the black guy, the old black guy, because he got two imbeciles there that kill him. But yeah, but that's his wishes, against his wishes. But he Bobby. knows he that by kill. I think for a guy yeah. that's so smart, he's got to realize that he's got a bunch of gun-troding rednecks here. What are they going to do? And then, then he's got True. the uh, the <laughs> one girl who's uh, Dana, who's banging Lloyd, and. It's just like, instead of like, he's just kind of playing back and forth with her and stuff. And it's just like, I think right there where she killed herself, that was the beginning. That was the downfall of him. Well, you know what, though? I liked that, though. You talk about somebody who finally does something. I mean, she she, basically says, well, you know, I may be going down, but it ain't going to be by you. And she gets into a fight with him and sees the only way out is that big piece of glass. She just throws herself on it. I'm like, you go, yeah, girl. She's, that was she's, pretty she's badass. A, she's man. a firecracker. I mean. 
Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, she was way, her and Nadine were way more interesting. Yeah, she barely had, Dana had barely any plot in this thing. You just know that she got sent there. I know. That's the, like, we, we meet her at the beginning of part three when presumably her husband is dying while Stu, of all people, is performing an appendicitis in a subway on him, whatever. And then the next time we see her, she's in lingerie with Lloyd. And that's when we know, oh, she was the spy because they sent the sexy one. You know, so, and I, I'm like, well, it, it works, you know. I liked her. I liked her little stand, though. I thought that was good. I, I, I was, I was cool with her and, and the whole bit. And as far as Nadine going crazy, you know how I've always taken that is when he impregnates her, it's like his seed inside of her drives her insane. And the finally, when she's able to get a grip and a moment of clarity, she throws herself off the building. That was pretty cool, too. I mean, the two females here have the most, uh, I, I would say they have the boldest stand-up of anybody against Flag. I was thinking with 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 Nadine that I think probably the part that I still think the part that drove her crazy was the fact that she got banged by a demon and he didn't hide it. He was like throwing it in her face. But I I, I really liked the Dana character. I think she right. was for the five minutes she was on screen. I really liked her and I liked that you know when they figured it out she wasn't trying to like be coy or anything about it. She's like no I'm gonna take matters in my own hand. She puts like the freaking. Uh, you know the uh, taxi cat, taxi, uh, taxi driver uh, type uh, switchblade thing on her na- on her um, hand, and I think that was really cool. And I love yeah. the banter between her and Flag because Flag's trying to play it coy and stuff like that, like he's going to let her go, and you know that he's not going to let her go, and that he's kind of going back and forth. He's trying to figure out what's going no. on, what's this other spy out there, because he knows that there's three of them. He's able to figure some stuff out as he was saying. And he was kind of having this nice little banter back and forth, and I thought that was actually probably the best part of whole part law, best part of part four, is when this was going. Oh, easily is it the the parts he has with Dana and Nadine are the most compelling things. In I even love the two when Nadine is uh, they meet Nadine for the first time and they're entering the entering the elevator and she's like. This is hell, and we're in it and yeah. stuff. Or yeah. yeah, I mean that was great. I think she realized after you know he put his uh, <laughs> demon seed in her <laughs> that yeah it was all over for for everybody. And she's not wrong either. I mean that's exactly what's happening. I'll say the other thing though, and, and we've we've complimented those two parts as being really outstanding. The other scene that I still like, and it still works for me, even though I know it's coming or whatever, is after the the four or the three are arrested, because we haven't even talked about the fact that Stu got hurt along the way. Glenn, Larry, and uh, Ralph are in prison, and Glenn, uh, Glenn is uh, being challenged by Flag, and he is, you know, Glenn, the guy we've talked about, the intellectual who didn't buy into all this hocus pocus you know, really shows off the faith here at this point and says, you know, you can kill me, whatever. It's fine. I don't care because, you know, you're not, you're not as good as you think you are. And he calls it out. He said, you're destroying yourself already. You just don't even know it. And so he tells Lloyd to shoot him. And when Lloyd shoots him, I love how Glenn does the whole, you know, forgive him. He doesn't know what he's doing thing. And I, I thought that was really good. And there's there's a moment right after that where Larry and Ralph like you know clutch hands in the cell and they start saying the prayer together. I thought you know finally we get some like real moments from these guys. And wouldn't that have been so much more poignant if I had actually cared about any of them to begin with? Yeah, it's one of the only times where kind of the uh, the schmaltzy hokiness actually works. Exactly. It, and you know what? Again, it wouldn't feel that way if the rest of this movie wasn't so damn 
a hoagie. Yeah. But it all is. So it just, it's like, eh. but I, at that point, I realize we're at the end and I'm, I'm okay with it. Yeah, I, I love the insult, though, that he gave Lloyd where it goes, you don't know what you're doing. And it's like, that is like, yeah. that was, that was a really good burn to him. I mean, I don't think it was it, meant to be kind of in that way, but it's like, yeah, it, 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 it is what it is. And I mean, he's being truthful yeah. in a way where it's like, you don't know what you're doing because, you know, you were, you were taken by this guy, but you're also taken because you're a simpleton. Exactly. Yeah. You're not, you're not anything, you know, more than just your base instincts. Lord. I mean, it's almost like, like I said, like when we, uh, when you're a kid and your parents say you're not, they're not mad, they're disappointed, how that kind of like right. burns. It was like that same type of insult where it's like, exactly. it wasn't like you asshole or something like that. It was like just a total like burn down to the bone. And it's like, you could tell it affected him too. And he's just like, you know, he was, couldn't really say anything after that and stuff. You no, know, like shut, he, shut up, old man, shut up. If, if, if he'd have had more bullets, he would have put him in him, but he shot him five times. So that's yeah. all he had. And that was, that was it. Well, even, so. even back to the old stew part, because, you know, when they leave, Mother Abigail kind of gives him like her little Yoda vision where she's like, one will fall along the way. That, that, <laughs> that was a cheat, dude. I'm sorry. It's like, yeah, he literally fell. I mean, the way she was kind of trying to show it kind of sounded like maybe like someone would have died. Well, you know how I took that? I was like, one of them is going to betray the rest of them. And I'm going, uh-oh, Larry's going to, you know, turn on them or Glenn or something. And I'm, I'm thinking about it like, the first time I saw this and not knowing, having not read it at the time I first saw this, didn't know how it went. And then I began to wonder, I was like, why does Stu get to live? Is it just so he can be daddy to Franz and his baby? Because, because, because like, he what? can't find his proper footing in probably one of the worst falls in cinematic history. Oh, Dude, it is so bad. He's like on top, like, "Hey guys, I made it." And all of a sudden, it's like it's like a cut, and he's like, "Oh, I'm falling," and it's it's terrible. It's not believable at all how he falls. It's just like I would have sat there if he would have fell down at the bottom, be like, "Dude, you purposely did that." And I love how it's Glenn that's like, "No, we got to leave him behind, guys." Remember, Yoda or Mother Abigail told us one. They have the same (laughs) skin texture. Okay, (laughs) they really do. You know, I've never thought of it till you said that. But yes, all she needed to do was talk backwards, and then we would have had it. She's the same height too. (laughs) Uh, Ruby D will will throw a curse on you, sir. But uh, anyway, I I don't know. Like my whole thing about this is. I knew somebody had to survive so somebody can tell the tale, right? And it makes some sense that it's Stu because in a lot of ways he's the first one of these people that we're introduced to with any length of time at all. Well, he's the main character. Well, is he? That's the thing. Like in the book, maybe. In this, I don't know because he's largely forgotten for a chuck of this. I'm just going back to the first chapter. Always kind of the main point when he's in the military holding and stuff. I think he's was supposed to be the main character. Okay, well, they do a it, it, this is then the example again of when the cast is too big, there's too many people that it's hard to tell. Like, unlike it, where it's clear Bill is the main guy the whole time through it, they switch focus too many times to these other people. So I don't, I don't, I have a hard time accepting Stu as the main force of things, even though they, they throw him up there many times that he will be the main driving force of everything. It just doesn't. It just doesn't play. I, I don't know. I don't buy it. Well, it doesn't play because the portrayal in the second half isn't as good as it was in the first half. And I think a lot of that's to do with the people he's playing off of. Oh, I agree. And they don't, again, they don't give him a lot to do. There's not, I mean, there's not much that other than fall down that hill or, and make that one speech and no one, lead the national But then anthem. again, no one does anything. 
No one does anything. I mean, we're talking. It is a lot of walking and standing around. I mean, it's very Lord of the Rings early. Well, at least Lord of the Rings, they got battles and some giant freaking eagles. I mean, here it's just it's nothing, and that's and that's what I wonder too. Even at the end, I mean, let's just get right to it. I mean, you got you got the two guys, and you know they're they're left, and they put them on crosses. Of course, they put them on crosses, and. They're going to burn them? Is that what they're going to do? No, they're going to draw and quarter them in public. What does that mean? It <laughs> means you're going to pull somebody into five directions, cut their head, arms, and legs, and torso from each other, and then scatter them. That's what drawing and quartering is. Well, it's even worse. So, anyways, uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm just again, again, it's like everybody's there, like, yes, 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 let's it's do this. It's public execution. But, but it's, why, it's the whole idea. But of the, why? Yeah. why? What is public execution going to do here? Because. Again, you haven't showed anything within this community in Las Vegas. So again, it goes back to everybody here is evil. Everybody in Boulder is really good. So we just let's take that these people here are just pure evil, and they're and they, and they just want to see blood. They just want to see. No, no. Here's killed. the thing: they've set up that there's a group of people among the flag followers who have started to kind of bug out and just want to be left alone. They don't want to be with Flag. They don't want to be with Abigail. They just want to be agnostic and go away. And what Flag is saying is like, uh, uh-uh. uh. You will choose me, or you will choose death, and th- and it's supposed to be this real autocratic. It's very thing, very light, but it's poorly over. done. That's the problem. It's very thin and poorly done, and it uh, that's why it doesn't play right. Because I don't understand what's the purpose of the the public execution either. I mean, again, in the book, it's much clearer. Here, it's just like it's another show of force for no see, reason. It would have been so much better if Flag would have been there and been more of like a because you never see him addressing the people, right? You never see him out there as like a dictator or someone who's making well, speeches. Well, same thing, though. We never saw Mother Abigail really address the people. We saw her let people come up on her porch and get some lemonade. That was, I mean, it's the same thing. Both of these leaders are really weak. But I, I, I can take it from her side because her side's supposed to be the good side. She's supposed to be like the Jesus character who she's going to have her people do the talking right. for her. You know? Where him, he's supposed to be like the Hitler. He's supposed to be the Stalin-type guy who's taking command. And wouldn't have played so much better if you would have had people who have lost faith in him, where it's like, dude, this guy's completely insane. And he basically makes a big speech to all these people saying, hey, you can leave. But you leave, you're going to die. Well, that's kind of what because he does. here we're set. We're, but he doesn't do it in the movie, though, because you never see him addressing anybody. Until the very end. Lloyd, trash can man, rat man, the guy that's the worst character in the world. And maybe a couple other characters. I would have thought it would have been so much better if he would have actually made a speech to these people and say, you guys leave. Those people in Boulder are going to get you. I'm the only thing here that's protecting you people. The only thing protecting you is inside this city right now because they're afraid to come in here because of who we are. But you go out there and you guys are going to be left and they're going to kill you. Try to make it seem like the people in Boulder are the bad people. That's what he should have been doing the whole time. And these people would have fell into his whole like charisma, fell into his whole you know scheme of things. But they never have that here. It just seems like everybody here is just again paint. It's just it's just dry paint here. Well, I, I like, don't disagree. This part's dark. This part's you know light. what they could have made a great part out of that. But instead, we spend the whole time with people walking around staring at each other. That's you know. Or, or hugging in the middle of a church. I mean, there's, I mean, yeah, there's just a lot of nothing that's happening. You're right. and But, you know, the final end of all of it is Trash rolls up with the nuclear weapon, and I suppose it's supposed to be the hand of God that shows up and the voice of Mother Abigail, and that sets up See, I took, it, I took it as Mother Abigail that did. I never took it that Well, I think it's clearer in the, like, I, I'm projecting a bit. Oh, in, that, in the book yeah, it's Yeah, I'm God. projecting that in the, that book, in the book that was the hand of God that did that. You're right. In the film, it's like, this is Mother Abigail's ghost setting off the ball. You know, in the, in the book, they clearly say it's God. In the book, they clearly yes. say it's God. And here, 
it comes off like his mother Abigail, and I just like it's like you're coming home. You're coming home. It's coming off like Tangia and freaking Poltergeist. <laughs> well, the thing is, though, we're supposed to believe Frost that it destroys everything. Hold on. We're supposed to believe it destroys everybody, but Flag clearly turns into the crow and flies away before it goes off. And I'm like, well, okay, so where does he go? Because we never see him again, ever. Like, nothing. And I'm like, well, that was really, it would have been different if he was just standing there kind of searing, and then boom, we see the mushroom cloud. That would have been more tension. The fact that they do that animation where he turns into the bird and flies, it's like, well, crap, he got away. So Vegas gets nuked. So what? Yes, yeah, so a dun dun dun. Is he dead? But yeah, I mean, in the book, they make it clear what happens right. to him and that he doesn't die. Right. And that you know he's oh he goes to a different area and it's going to start to stuff all over again with a different group of survivors. But yeah, I th- again, it's just poorly executed. What was the poor purpose of not showing what happened to him? He's the big bad. I mean. This would be like, you know, in Star Wars, if they don't show what happens to Vader. I mean, it's just like you have to know what happens to this guy. And they completely drop the ball here, like so much other stuff. And I don't know. I just, again, what did these guys do to cause this? Trash Can Man did this. It was Randall Flagg's own pride, his arrogance, and his failings that caused him and his people well, to Well, and it, that's flat out what Dana and Nadine lay on him. And Glenn, to some respect, too. They all lay that on him. But what was the point of them going? Again, what was the point of Mother Abigail sending I guess to tell him that? Ha- this I don't know. Happened any- <laughs> this would have happened anyways. This would have happened anyways. Them going gets him to... I'm just going to defend the film's own logic for just a minute here, okay? Them going gets him to go into this whole public display of execution for no reason at all, which causes his him to slip on his own pride banana, and it gives the chance for Mother Abigail, God, whatever, to set that nuke off before he gets a chance to launch it back at Boulder, which we think was his plan anyway, right? That's what it does, is it distracts him enough to do it so their death is so he is distracted enough that they can take it out but again he doesn't die so I, it seems really you know uh perfunctory and but the problem with it is nick this happens and there's 20 minutes left to go there's that whole coda well, even when that happens though man i'm not buying that i'm not sorry i'm not buying that because it's like it was a freaking nuke, man. This wasn't like, you know, a bunch of TNT or something where it was like a controlled explosion and they had this little get-together and it's only because they had this get-together that they were all able to be killed. No, it was a freaking nuke. I mean, the trash can man was going to bring that into Vegas no matter what. But have you have you been to Vegas? There's absolutely nothing around it for hundreds of miles. You could set a nuke off. Yeah, they're, they're, they're going to be in the city and he would have brought that in there and they would have all been dead. You think? I mean, they, 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 they should... They definitely would have happened. There was no... What those four guys did did not influence Trash Can Man at all to bring that in there. He was going to do that anyways. No, he was bringing that back because Flag wanted him to go get it. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, but he, that's what I'm saying. He would he's bringing that back no matter what. Right, but what if if Flag wasn't trying to publicly execute people who don't matter? Wouldn't he have been like, oh yeah, thanks for my nuke, and then lobbed it at Boulder? That's what I'm saying. But 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 they but the guys there didn't set it off. It wasn't like they got out of the the chains and went and set this nuke off and self sacrificed themselves. It was the hands of God or Mother Abigail or whoever you want to see it, you know, that did it. And it's like, why couldn't this the deity being have done this anyway without those guys being there? Well, and now you've hit now you've hit on something. If, if you're going to introduce that kind of power into this type of story or whatever, that that is the it's ultimate problem. It, it is a cheat. It, it, well, it's the ultimate problem. It's like, well, why don't you just solve this? To be, why did you allow the super flu to kill everybody anyway? <laughs> you know that you start asking those questions, you've now you know put 
way too much burden on that plot device. Yeah, is it to separate the truly good from the truly evil? Because I'm sure some, I don't know, Molly Ringwald's dad seemed like a really good guy. Why did he have to die? You know? Well, I, you know, there, uh, yeah, we're not even going to get into that. Why, who got chosen and all that. That's a whole other discussion. But, but why I'm, couldn't, if that was the plan all the time, that this nuke was going to go into there and that they, God was going to pick it up and like snap his fingers and make it blow up, why did they have to be there with it? Why? Was it that their being there gave them a little bit of extra power to do it? Then you're going against the whole thing of it being God, that God's all-powerful. So I, I don't know. I just... It felt really, really ham-handed. It is supposed to be the ultimate show of faith that those guys go go up there knowing they're going to die, but for dying for the right reasons. And it doesn't. I mean, it does. I'm not saying it works. I'm saying that's what the movie wants us to accept. So if these two people didn't go there to die. Then God would have been like, "All right, well, they're going to shoot the nuke at you guys, and the world's going to be run by Randall Flagg and the Vegas people." I mean, that's just something. It's just. It's really hard to swallow. Well, it's it's also again where you, when you have theology getting adapted by people that don't really know what the story is either. Too this is the like what you just said is exactly how God would let it go. Like you want the Earth fine. See what would have been better is if they would have went there and maybe the old man dying or something influenced Lloyd to be the turn coat. Right. That- like if if Lloyd had made the the turn there and yeah. flipped the switch. I'm with you. I I wanted Lloyd to turn around and set the nuke off. I figured yeah, it, it would it be. It would have had to be him. Wasn't. I mean, he would have been like the reverse Judas here where he he, he sees these guys right. sacrifice himself and he goes, "My god, I'm on the wrong side." And you know what? We're all screwed. We we are all beyond forgiveness here. We have to end this here and that he does it somehow. That he somehow sets off the nuke or somebody in that position does. The fact that it's just like Oh, you're here. We're going to have this happen here, and you guys are going to die. It's just so random, and it's just so – it's a cheat. I mean, it is a complete cheat because it goes against – It is, and and I, I say this, too, to get into that last coda that I, I do want to talk about is this is what happens so often in these Stephen King things is that the big final thing is such a letdown from everything that's built up to it, and then they tag on these 20 minutes of coda of, you know, Stu has the flu – and Tom finds him, and then he goes back, and his baby's okay, and they name it after Abigail, and they don't know if humanity can be any better the second time around, or the third time if you count the flood. So, I mean, really, I, I'm I'm looking at this the same way I looked at the end of it when they killed the giant spider. Remember how big of a letdown that was, knowing that there was no way they could have done the ritual of Chud that's in the book. You know, fine, but the the ultimate letdown of that movie was that the final battle was a real just yeah, there was nothing to it, right? They beat the crap out of an animatronic spider. You know, in the shadows of that, didn't even show it on the screen. And the ultimate letdown of this is a nuke goes off that we're not entirely certain who set it off one and two. We don't really understand why it had to go down that way. And and the other thing is the way Tom and uh, Stu react to that nuke. Like they look like like they're going, oh, is that a flashlight in the distance? I'm sorry, if a nuclear bomb goes off, you you would know it. The way they react to it is that the cloud appears on their faces, and they're like... The fact that they're able to walk there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Boulder and Vegas are not... I mean, they're decent apart, far apart, but they walk there, and from what I got, that Stu made most of the journey there. So he... Right. Like, he was close enough yeah, to Yeah, he was close enough where he would have got radiation sickness or radiation poison. He would have came back Yes. And- well, that's what I thought at first. Like, he's sick with the flu, and I'm like... That doesn't make any sense. He's now he's going to have radiation poisoning yeah. too. I don't know. It's just even when we get into that too, it's like okay, well, Tom finds him. I mean, convenient. 
that he finds them. Well, what? what no, no. Tom, Tom is directed to find him. Yeah, by that's Nick. true. That's true. Yeah, the, that's the true, spectral yeah. of Nick, who finally can talk in the afterlife, which is fine. You know, I, I get that. But why does Stu get the flu after he breaks his leg? I didn't think it that he got the flu. I think it he got sick from his infection and his broken leg. Well, I thought that too. But like they, you know, he he goes on this whole thing with talking to Kojak. About, it's like, you know, watching Tom Hanks talk to Wilson in Castaway. He's like, oh, I'm going to die of the flu after all. I'm like, well, how the hell did you get? Wouldn't the flu have dissipated? Like, viruses need organisms to grow on when everybody yeah, that. the flu would have been gone at that <laughs> point. Yeah, it, it would have been gone. Off. Everybody's dead. There's not, everybody that's alive is immune to it. You don't all of a sudden become not immune to it. The virus would have been dead. <laughs> yeah, I took it that he was getting, like, some type of, like, some type of infection from his broken leg because it wasn't properly treated. Right, that would make sense. Like, but they they mention it so many times that you're it led to believe like got, Yeah, that he's got the flu. <laughs> I'm like, that doesn't that doesn't play right at all. And the other thing is, they undercut the whole tension of the baby. Right, like the whole point of the fear of the baby is not can we be good parents in this world. It's what what if the baby, you know, is not immune to this flu. Is that the end of humanity? To which, to me, doesn't make any sense because, like we just said, the virus would have been long dead by now. <laughs> There's no way, and especially since you know we're led to believe that Stu got her pregnant after the virus has hit. So it's like two, you know, um, immune parents would not produce an, an immune child. That doesn't make any sense. See, it's it's done so much better in the book because when she's got pregnant by a guy who wasn't immune to it, that they were exactly afraid. because they, they didn't they didn't have medical knowledge or really any type of knowledge on how this virus, if it would even be around. They right. didn't know. So they were just nervous that, hey, I'm bringing a child into this world that was fathered by a guy who wasn't immune to it. Who's he going to take after? Yeah. I mean, that would have made, again, that was a bad choice. to. I'm not saying they need another character in this thing. We could have gone with she has been pregnant the whole time. And that she, you know, it's telling Stu, like, you know, I, why would you want somebody like me? Um, you know, I'm already pregnant, blah, blah, blah. And he, it's like, well, I'll be a father to your kid. And that's, you know, why they hook up or whatever. That would have been. That's all they would have needed to do, and and they could have just thrown that in there and let Harold think. Well, it was they didn't want to make Molly Ringwald seem like a, you know, they didn't want to make her seem like that type of girl in this. They want to make her seem wholesome and everything, and you know, oh, she only. It was a bad choice. I want to say it's it's a poor. Cho- I mean, I know you have to pare characters down when you adapt books to films, but that was a poor. Well, choice. dude, I mean, look at everything in the movie though. Everything is goody goody, so it's gotta. She's got to be goody goody. I mean, the way she would have wanted the mother Abigail and that child was born. Well, I don't know. I guess they weren't married anyways. I'm surprised she didn't turn her away and go, be out of here, you skank. You know? I think I think they were done with judging people at that point. <laughs> it was, you know. Well, she wasn't because she shot down Indians, And you so. were dreaming of me. This is true. This is true. Well, I think it's time for us to get final judgment and thoughts and popcorn ratings for the entire miniseries here of The Stand. So, Nick, what's your uh, popcorn rating for this? Six hours of my life, Jay. Six hours. <laughs> That's what this was. A lot of the other stuff, you know, maximum overdrive, 90 minutes, you know, Christine, 90 minutes or so. This was six hours. Six hours I invested in this stuff, invested in these characters, invested in the story. And I really like the story. I like the basis of the story. I love the book. I love exactly what's going on here. But this is almost like, you know, a four-year-old finding his dad's gun, the way that these people took this book. And yeah, it might be Stephen King himself who wrote a lot of this stuff, all right? We learned that he shouldn't be around movies. And 
it just was handled in a way that it should not be handled. And overall, I just, again, just six hours of my life, I feel like I kind of just wasted in a way by watching this stuff. So I got to give this a medium popcorn. I mean, it's not terrible. It's not the worst thing we've seen. But it's far from the best. It's no, you know, no it. And that's not saying a lot. I mean, I don't know. I just, it's a medium popcorn. It's, it's just a plain medium popcorn. There's no extra anything on this stuff. It's, it's, if you haven't seen it, check it out because it might take you to lead the book. But if you have seen this in the past and you got good memories of it, just leave it where it is. Cause going back and re- re- revisiting it, it just, the movie just reeks of made for TV crap. And the movie took anything that was complex, the movie took anything that was complex about the book and just made it purely black and white. It's not very good. I agree with you that this is the definition of medium popcorn. Purely mediocre. Not bad, but not really outstanding either in any way. And in a, in a lot of ways, it's very much like most of this cast. You know, they're just okay. You know, some of them have brighter moments than others. We've called those out. But most of it is just okay. And I'm like you. The book and the story is so much more intriguing and if you have seen this before, I, I'm with you. Don't go revisit it. Just let your memories of it be what it is and go read the book again. If you've never seen it, but you've read the book or haven't, you know, hopefully you'll, you'll read the book. And then if you watch this, you can have some fun with it. But it is very medium popcorn. And you talk about six hours. I want everyone to know this was your idea. <laughs> we were not going to do this one. But then when we started moving pieces around, decided to not do Carrie, and we didn't want to do Creep Show anymore, you're like, we should do the stand. It's important. We need to do it. And I said, okay, yes, we will do the stand again. So you're a victim. You're just like Randall Flagg. You're a victim of your own pride, sir. Well, in my, in my, in my defense, man, this is a quintessential Stephen King book. And no, you're right. This was the quintessential Stephen King miniseries. Well, you know, here's the thing: is like in, in the way we structured this series, because there was no way we were doing every Stephen King adaptation that's ever been. There's just too many of them. Yeah, we didn't do any of the good ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I noticed that. Well, no, take that back. We did The Shining, which is we started with probably yeah, the we, best. We, yeah, we started off high. We did, and then in the middle, we did it, which we both really liked, and then we found morsels along the way. We both enjoyed Pet Cemetery for what it was, and I liked Christine more than you, but it was still good and we found some kitschy fun along the way i mean you had graveyard shift that was one you liked i like silver bullet we both hated maximum overdrive but it was fun to make fun of you know and now we get to this thing and i feel like you know we had a beginning middle and an end and it's it's funny that we ended with this one because it's something i want to talk about now is sort of thoughts on stephen king stuff and we've had this conversation offline it's now time to have it on the podcast this is my biggest complaint about stephen king stuff is he cannot stick the landing. He can do the setup, he can make the middle really cool, but in the end, he always ends on a flutter. I have never ended one of his books or one of his movies where I felt completely satisfied with what I got. It always seems to just miss somewhere in the end. He just strikes out in the ninth, and I don't know what it is about that, and I wanted to throw that to you and see if you felt the same way or if you disagreed. Yeah, I, I really feel that our retrospective, our selective retrospective, really kind of nails Stephen King's movies and a lot of his liter- liter- literary work as a whole because it started off strong and really ended kind of bad. <laughs> I mean, we start off with something like The Shining and end with something as meddling as The Stand. And yeah, I mean, anything that really was a strong book for him besides, you know, 
maybe something like The Shining and stuff, which really wasn't a long novel like he's been writing now. But I really feel that Stephen right. King, as an author, really works best in the short story genre. I mean, I, I realize I have all his short story books, and I love his short stories. Because a lot of times with the short stories, you can just kind of leave it open-ended. Whereas if you read something for 800, 900, 1,000 pages, you can't leave it open-ended at the end because right. you've got someone who's invested in weeks, maybe months into a book. And I just feel like that aspect of Stephen King, the fact that he can't nail an ending, is almost like they take that aspect of his writing and then make that into a lot of his works, is that they just can't nail anything in these. I mean, I don't know if it's just because the the way the words translate onto a visual medium or really what. I mean... The Shining was the only standout of this whole series, and I went into this retrospective really not even liking The Shining. I remember seeing it a long time ago and didn't really care for it, and a lot of these other movies that I thought I liked, turned out I really didn't care for them when I'm, you know, rewatching them, I guess, now with my more cynical or mature eyes, however you want to see it, and I don't know, I just really feel that his works, besides a lot of the Darabont stuff, really has not been done properly. And I really kind of hope that in the future we get some better adaptations. I know right now that uh, Beneath the Dome's going on right now on uh, CBS, and I have not checked that out yet. Right. And I've heard good things about it, so I'm kind of kind of eager to check that out, but I'm also kind of hesitant based on a lot of our past viewing experiences during this. I, I, I watched the first two episodes of it, and I haven't gone back to it because I, I began to feel the same way I feel about this and so many other things. It's like, uh, it's just, this isn't leading anywhere. And I, you know, I just, it was meddling, you know? So, the, you know, you say the thing about The Shining that it stands out and stuff. I, I want to say this. The reason The Shining holds up and stands out is for two reasons Jack Nicholson and Stanley Kubrick. Otherwise, if you really want to see what Stephen King thinks The Shining should be, Go watch the Stephen Weber at Stephen King t- television version of it, and then you'll see. And the only thing that's right about that that wasn't so right about the first one is Rebecca DeBornay. She looks more like what Wendy's supposed to be like than Shelley Duvall ever would. But other than that, everything about the Kubrick Shining buries that TV miniseries and pretty well buries anything else. The only other one I would hold up remotely close in terms of tension that works is Christine, but that's because I love Carpenter. And I'm willing to give that more of a pass. And I actually will lay a lot of that is because Carpenter's good, not because Stephen King can hold tension. Well, you're comparing Chevy, Shelley Duvall to Rebecca, <laughs> Rebecca D. Mornay. <laughs> no, no, not at all. No, I, just like I'm saying, is that's a, like kind one of... One is a much better actress, one is much better. Yeah, that's like kind of comparing like a gremlin to a Ferrari there. <laughs> <laughs> and well, but again, you know, the adaptations as they go... The reason that one is good, really what I'm getting at is that, that that was Nicholson and Kubrick more than, I would say, King influence. Because as, as you said before, when he has his hands in this stuff, it always gets screwed Well, let's be honest I mean, here with a lot of this stuff. I think a lot, like stuff like The Shining, Kubrick took, a, Kubrick took control of that. You know, right. like Stephen King, you know, didn't have the clout he had back then. But he also, even if he did, he wasn't going to be able to take any control from a guy like Kubrick. Kubrick was very, like no. a very much in control of everything he did. He needed complete power when he was creating a film. Whereas I think the other films, you'll notice that when the director or screenwriter, whoever comes in, it's either Stephen King helping writing it or directing it with something like Maximum Overdrive or that King has some bit of power over these people where he's able to influence them. And I think Stephen King has a very great literary mind but doesn't have a great visual mind as far as you know adapting his own work into a visual medium like this. And 
I just think that's a lot of what's happened with a lot of these films later is like you get lesser and lesser directors directing them. And, and I think it's all because Stephen King can have power over these people. He can kind of tell them or lead them where it is. I mean, you obviously have the exception with the Darabont stuff, and I think that's because Darabont's a little bit of a different breed there. Darabont's an old-school Hollywood guy. He's been around the game for a long time. And Darabont is, before a director, he's a writer. He's a right. screenwriter. And where these other guys, they're all, they're all directors for hires. I mean, whether it's you know from a movie like you know Graveyard Shift or, you know, Silver Bullet to a miniseries like The Stand or It. Those guys are just directors for hire. They're, they're not guys you're ever going to see at the Academy Awards. They're not ever going to see guys you're going to see in the running for a big tentpole movie. They're directors for hires. And there's a reason for that. And I think it really makes the work, the these movies suffer because of it. I, I can't disagree with anything you're saying. And, and that's why I say it's been interesting to revisit this because I went into this going, it's going to be really cool to, you know, one of the masters of horror, Stephen King, and all this stuff, and get into some of these these broader pictures of what he gets. And I think we've pointed out and done a good job of pointing out a lot of the, the tropes that he uses along the way. But largely this has been really eye opening for me. And I'm curious now to have conversations with some of our fans, either on Facebook or, you know, Twitter, things like that about, you know, why is it people keep going back to the well for this guy when the results are largely middling? And I, I think I can answer that is that they're not so awful all the time that there's no profit to be made in them. There's no ratings. There's no you know draw to it. But they're also not terribly memorable. Like I think my memories of Stephen King stuff are much stronger than the actual stuff when going back to revisit it. And that's curious to think about because we're heading into the fall here. There's the Carrie remake coming out. All things from the trailers. That new one looks really cool, and the studio believed in it so much they moved it out of the dumping grounds of February and March and put it in October. So clearly they think it's got something. I'm curious to see how that one goes, even though we won't be covering it here. Of course, folks, you can also catch our other podcasts, The Art of Slaying, our Buffy the Vampire Slayer retrospective, and The Fabish Factor, the general movie discussion podcast. All of those at continuousplaypodcast.com. Just click the uh, link of your choice, either the Filmstrip, Fabish Factor, or the Buffy logo there, and you can find the podcast you're looking for. You can find links to our social media, Facebook and Twitter pages there. Hook up with us. Let us know if you think more of Stephen King or less of him even than we do. Let us know what you think of the episodes and the reviews. Leave us a review on iTunes as it helps other folks find the podcast. Until next time, for Nick, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Next time I yell, friend, you're going to pay attention, I guarantee it. Visit our website, continuousplaypodcast.com for more reviews and episodes. Come see you and all your all content used or discussed in this podcast are the property of their respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act Section 504C2, Title 17.